0: As I live, declares the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I will be king over you. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you are scattered with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face. As I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God. I will make you pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. I will purge out the rebels from among you, and those who transgress against me. I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they shall not enter the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord." This is the Word of God.
1: Before we take a look at this passage, would you bow your heads and your hearts with me once more? And let's pray. Father in heaven, um, it has been um, one of those weeks. We certainly noticed at at the prayer meeting uh, on Wednesday, it's been one of those weeks when um, we are so desperately. Uh, in need of and grateful for a God who calls us into his presence and invites us to lay before you the cares and concerns of our hearts, of our lives, um, of our world, because it has been one of those weeks where it it just seems like it's all too much. Um, Father, we thank you that you have uh, not just opened a way Uh, for us to come before you, but you've even commanded us uh, to do this. You've commanded us to to pray. You've commanded us to cry out to you and call upon your name. Uh, And so we do. Um, Father, we look uh, at the concerns of the world, uh, of violence and bloodshed taking place in Israel, in Gaza, in Ukraine, um, and in so many other places that, that don't make it as high up on, on the headlines, but are, are grievous nonetheless. And we, and we pray, uh, would you bring peace uh, in our world? Uh, would you give our leaders wisdom? Um, would you do more than we can ask or imagine uh, and, and bring this bloodshed to an end? Um, Father, we individually are, are here before you, and, and, and you know the cares and concerns in this room. You know that there are people here In this room for whom the chaos takes the form um, of of illness that needs healing, um, of uh, struggles at work or struggles to find work that need resolution, of brokenness uh, in our families, our immediate families, our extended families uh, that grieve us, that that keep us up at night. Um, Father, we thank you. Um, that You have called us to lay these things before You because You care for us. Uh, We thank You that You are a God who sees Your people, who hears us when we cry out to You, uh, that You know us, and that You want us to know You uh, more deeply. Um, It is the deep prayer of our hearts uh, as we come to sit under Your Word um, that 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 very thing, that that the the knowledge of You um, by Your people uh, would grow. Uh, and deepen, that we would leave this place with a deeper knowledge of who you are and your character and your faithfulness to us uh, than when we came in, Uh, that there might be moments uh, even in the midst of this sermon when we would drop our heads in worship um, in the presence of a God who is awesome, who is holy, um, who is abounding in steadfast love and mercy, of a God uh, who has given us his Son and who has sent us His Spirit to be at work in our hearts. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in Your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, I want to draw your attention, uh, as we've been doing uh, for the past few weeks, to the fact that as we're making our way through the book of Ezekiel this fall, In order uh, to think about the presence of God, in order to to take hold of uh, this idea that God's presence is His ever-present and awe-inspiring power to give life and strength to His people. Um, As we're making our way through the book of Ezekiel, looking at that that concept, we have an outline uh, on page 14 this week um, of the order of service. that that we hope will kind of orient you. We're not preaching through Ezekiel going verse by verse, um, but rather uh, more looking at it it thematically um, as a lens through which to think about the presence of God. Um, And if you look at that, we're on Sermon 7. We're actually halfway through our series, believe it or not. Um, And if you look at the next two sermons, you'll notice two things about them. Uh, one is that both of the next two sermons are going to cover a lot of ground. Uh, this week, we're looking at 13 chapters in one sermon, chapters 12 through 24. Next week, we're going to be looking at another nine. Um, and so, as you can imagine, you know, these, these next two sermons are going to be very thematic. Uh, it would be impossible to cover 13 uh, chapters and, and read every verse of them. Um, But the other thing you'll notice about these next two uh, sermons um, is that they are going to deal with God's judgment. Um, You might ask yourself, how is it that we are going to look at God's judgment uh, and conclude that His presence brings life and strength uh, to His people? Um, And that will be our question. That will be our question for these next two weeks. How is it that this God... Uh, Who is holy, um, who enters into judgment, who is perfectly just, who says of himself that he will not let the guilty go unpunished. How is it that he nevertheless is a God who is present to his people in a way uh, which brings life and strength uh, to us? Um, Just to orient you a little bit to the book, uh, the chapters we've looked at so far have introduced a lot of the main themes. Uh, chapters 1 through 11 introduce a lot of the main themes of of this book. And then what Ezekiel does as he goes through the rest of of the book, um, he goes back to those themes and fleshes them out a lot more. So we are now in the section in which God's judgment uh, of his people um, as he takes them into exile and then judges the nations as well, that'll be next week, um, is going to be fleshed out um, a whole lot more. Here, here's what we're going to see in this, in this passage today. Um, Ezekiel, as a prophet, this was common to all of the prophets, his role was a little bit like the prosecuting attorney for God. This is what all the prophets did. All of them stood in God, God's presence, and they received a word from the Lord to take to the people. Um, and generally speaking, that word boiled down to here's the covenant. Okay, here's what God said uh, that you were to do. Here's what life was supposed to look like, and they would especially point to the book of Deuteronomy. If you want to read the covenant that God made with his people, Deuteronomy is is the best place to see it all laid out. Um, And then he would say, uh, the the prophets would say, and here's what has happened. And these two don't line up. Um, Here's what the covenant said. Here's what you have done. Um, Ezekiel is playing the role of God's prosecuting attorney, calling his people uh, into judgment. And we're going to see that as he plays the role of God's prosecuting attorney over these 13 chapters that we'll just have to pull examples out of, um, he does it in a way that is, on the one hand, brutally honest about their history. So this is the first thing, is that there are no punches pulled. Ezekiel is brutally honest. Um, with the people about their history. And by extension, because this is a word from God, God is being brutally honest about their history. Um, Secondly, Ezekiel is going to uphold the justice of God's judgment. He's going to say, "This, this really is just what God is doing. But thirdly, he's going to do it in a way that exhibits radical solidarity with the people. So, even as he is coming and and, and acting as the prosecuting attorney on behalf of God, uh, Ezekiel um, is going to find himself in a position of radical solidarity with the people. This is going to be another of these places um, where Ezekiel, in his role as prophet, is pointing beyond himself. Because what we're going to see is that he plays this role of prosecuting attorney, bringing a word from God not only to reveal what God says, but more than this, to reveal who He is. But Ezekiel can't do that perfectly. And so, in being brutally honest about Israel's history, in upholding the justice of God's judgment, and in exhibiting radical solidarity with His people, he's pointing ahead to the true prophet, to Jesus, who will reveal who God is in those same ways in a way that is perfect. Um, You might have picked up in the passage that Harmony read a particular phrase, uh, then they will know that I am the Lord. It was actually the phrase that closed that that section. Um, That phrase shows up over 50 times in the letter to Ezekiel. Uh, it shows up enough to convince us that what God is is really concerned with is not simply revealing what he is saying, but who he is. Then they will know that I am the Lord, um, is the point. Um, That is the goal. That's what Ezekiel is doing. So let's look at this. First of all, as I said, um, Ezekiel is going to be brutally honest um, about Ezekiel's history. Um, there are some chapters in this section that, even if we had time uh, to read them all, um, I, I, I would worry a little bit about reading them. Um, if, if for no other reason than uh, this, is, this is being recorded, you might know that we have a, a podcast where you can listen to the sermons. Uh, some people are hearing this for the first time on that podcast. Um, if, you, if you look at that podcast and look at the information for it, there's a rating. Uh, it says that we're clean which I guess is a good thing. If I read chapters 16 uh, and 23 out loud, we might risk that clean rating Um, because chapters 16 and 23 uh, of Ezekiel um, are brutally honest about Israel's history in a way that uses the most evocative imagery possible. Um, These are chapters in which God depicts himself on the one hand as the father um, of a girl who has been abandoned. And he depicts that abandonment, the language of that abandonment speaks in graphic imagery to all of the ways that a girl could possibly be vulnerable um, if she were abandoned. And then he says, not only was I the father uh, that that saved this this child, but then I became uh, the faithful husband uh, to this girl. But that girl turned away. Uh, and turned into prostitution. And again, the language uh, to describe what Israel has done is is as graphic um, as it it can possibly be. Um, God is pulling no punches in describing himself as a wounded father, um, an aggrieved husband. And then in chapter 20, he spells it out without all the allegory. He just goes through the history. He goes all the way back to the Exodus and says, here's what I did for you. I saved you. I brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I did this before you could ask. Uh, I did this when you were nothing. Um, I didn't do this because you were impressive. I did this because I loved you. Um, I pulled you out. I brought you through the wilderness. I was faithful to you. I brought you into the promised land. I was faithful to you. Um, And you have responded... If you read the narrative, uh, as it goes on in first and Second Samuel and in first and Second Kings, um, Israel responded to that by turning away uh, from their God and turning instead uh, to the gods of the nations around them, um, by engaging in idolatry and, and, and not only engaging in idolatry but engaging in all of the practices that tend to follow idolatry, practices of violence, um, practices of sexual promiscuity. Um, it, it 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 reads um, as a litany uh, of ways of violating uh, the covenant uh, that that God gave to them. Um, chapter twenty ends with some notes of hope, as 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 God is detailing all of this history, albeit hope that is dependent on repentance, which shouldn't surprise you if you were paying attention to our call to confession today. Isaiah, Isaiah 30 reminds us that in repentance and in rest is our salvation. the end of chapter 20, God says to the people, after, after describing everything that they've done, and again, just being brutally honest about all of it, He says, "'There you shall remember your ways and all your deeds with which you have defiled yourselves, and you shall loathe yourselves for all the evils you have committed, and you shall know that I am the Lord.'" when I deal with you for my name's sake, not according to your evil ways, nor according to your corrupt deeds. O house of Israel, declares the Lord God. One thing that is clear with God is that on the one hand, he knows everything about us. Um, he is able to give a brutally honest blow-by-blow depiction of Israel's history. He knows all of it. He knows exactly who he's dealing with. Um, He knew who he was dealing with when he saved them. He knew that this was coming when he brought them out. The fact that God knows everything about what you and I have done and everything about what you and I will do in the future, all of the different ways that we will fail, all the different ways that we will fall short and have done so, that could either be terrifying—I mean, think about how terrible it is to think about someone like really knowing everything about you—unless um, unless the one who knows everything about us is one who has demonstrated that he is always, always eager to forgive, that he is, in fact, more eager to forgive, more ready to forgive than we are eager to turn toward him. Um, he, is, he has demonstrated this in the fact um, that He has sent His Son to pay for our sins, to die in our place on the cross, and and that Jesus went to the cross knowing everything that He was dying for. I find that, you know, one of the, one of the hardest things uh, to experience in the life of faith, um, the life of faith has a lot of ups and downs to it. N- nobody becomes a Christian, and then it's just onward and upward, you know, straight up getting better and better all the time. We all go up and down. And sometimes when we've been going up and we go down, we fall hard, Um, there's a temptation to think, whoa, wait a minute, I was doing better, but maybe God hadn't taken account of that failure. Um, Maybe this time I've really let him down. You know, or, or when you find yourself in confession, confessing the same thing that you confessed the week before and the week before and the week before, and, and you start to think to yourself, wait a minute, just how many times is God going to want to listen to this? You need to understand, Jesus went to the cross knowing all of that. Um, our failures might surprise us. They might discourage us. They don't surprise Him. They don't discourage Him. They grieve him, of course, but they can't possibly thwart his love for us. They can't undo the forgiveness that he's already offered. Um, Jesus has already died. He has already paid the penalty uh, for those sins. The question that I want to ask you is you consider that our God is a God who in his holiness is brutally honest about the history of his people, including us. He is brutally honest with us about how we have fallen short. Where is it that you might be holding back? Where is it that you might be um, entertaining that fear that there's something that God doesn't know about you, some way that you might let Him down that couldn't be forgiven? Instead of Instead of tasting the sweetness of full repentance that leads to salvation without regret. That's how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 7. Repentance that leads to salvation without regret. So, this is the first thing Ezekiel, as God's prosecuting attorney, is being brutally honest about their history. But then, secondly, he's also upholding the justice of God's judgment. Um, Judgment is coming. Um, right at the beginning of our, of our passage, chapter 12, the first thing that uh, God tells Ezekiel to do is to act out the exile. This is, this is one of several places uh, where the prophet is asked to, to kind of put on a little play, you know, depict uh, by his actions what's about to happen. And so he, he depicts the act of, of uh, hastily packing a bag and fleeing. Um, and then after he does this, um, God makes it clear That this isn't just something that's coming way off in the future, but this is coming soon. That there's not going to be any more delay. Uh, Chapter 12 ends uh, this way It says, The word of God, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, behold, they of the house of Israel say, The vision that he sees is for many days from now, and he prophesies of times far off. Therefore, say to them, Thus says the Lord God, None of my words will be delayed any longer, but the word that I speak will be performed declares the Lord God. And then in two places in particular, um, he speaks about the justice of what's happening. Chapter 14 um, is, is, is interesting. It's chapter 14 reads very similar to that story where uh, Abraham um, prayed uh, that God would uh, not destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, where his nephew was living, And if you remember the the interaction, Abraham enters into this kind of negotiation with God where he says, well, what if you can find 50 righteous people? Would you you spare the city then? What if there are 40? What if there are 30? He gets them down to 10. Um, Chapter 14 of Ezekiel is is similar to that um, in that God says several different times in several different ways that even if he were to look at Jerusalem and find Noah uh, and Job and Daniel... Right? Three people that he's holding up as being particularly righteous, particularly faithful, that even if they were there, at best, their righteousness could save themselves, but it wouldn't spare the city. Um, God is going to judge uh, the evil that the people have done. And then in chapter 18, um, the people are complaining. Um, in chapter 18, the people are basically saying, wait a minute, okay, fine, our fathers did all these things, our fathers turned away from you. We know the story, we know about all the idolatry, we know about everything that's happened in these past several hundred years. Why are we the ones being punished for it? Uh, there's a proverb going around. The, uh, the proverb says, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. In other words, why are we bearing the penalty for what they did? Um, And the way that God answers this is simply to say, no, I'm not punishing you for what other people did. You yourselves, uh, you yourselves have turned away from me. You yourselves have engaged in these practices. Um, If you remember past chapters that we looked at several weeks ago, uh, God showed Ezekiel what was happening in Jerusalem um, at, at the moment that Ezekiel was first being called uh, as a prophet, he, he he showed him the idolatry that was taking place at that very minute. Um, he showed him the depths to which the people were falling. Um, God's judgment is not falling on anyone who doesn't deserve it, is what God is saying. Um, it's kind of a big corporate example of when the prophet Nathan tells that story to David. Right, And then the upshot of that story at, at, at the end of it, Nathan says, You are the man. You are the one that sin- has that sinned. Um, that's what the prophet is saying to the people here. You are the ones. Um, but again, but again, even in that context, even in upholding the justice of God's judgment that is coming, there is a note of grace. Listen to this. This is uh, Ezekiel 18, verses 30 to 32. He says, Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel. Everyone according to his ways declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit." Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. Did you notice that he said, Make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. If you remember last week's sermon from chapter 11, and these words will be repeated again. We're, we're, this is another place where Ezekiel's going to flesh it out. Uh, when we get to chapters 36 and 37, ultimately, God recognizes these people can't make themselves a new heart and a new spirit. This is, this is sort of central to why we need God to save us. This is why we need a Savior, because the only thing that we could save ourselves with, our heart, our spirit, is already broken. How, how, do, you, how do you fix something broken with something broken? But God's promise is, I'm going to give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. Um, But he is offering this note of grace. He says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone. So why will you die, O house of Israel? Turn to me and live. I know that I find that like Israel... um, I'm very good at shifting blame. I'm very good at saying that when I um, am suffering the consequences of my own actions, that someone else is ultimately at fault. And so the question for us here would be, again, where is it that we are doing that? Where are we shifting blame instead of receiving again, receiving the gift of repentance the gift of acknowledging our wrong and receiving forgiveness from a God who is eager to forgive, eager to give it. The last thing that we see um, is that Ezekiel finds himself in radical solidarity um, with his people. Chapter 24 is one of the most shocking episodes in the entire Bible. Um, let me just read it to you. Um, And it's it's notable, Ezekiel gives us the exact date again, so you can tell exactly when this happened. It stood out for him. Um, Ezekiel 24, 15 to 18, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, behold, I am about to take the delight of your eyes away from you at a stroke, yet you shall not mourn or weep, nor shall your tears run down, sigh, but not aloud, make no mourning for the dead. Bind on your turban and put your shoes on your feet. Do not cover your lips, nor eat the bread of men. So I spoke to the people in the morning, and at evening my wife died. And on the next morning I did as I was commanded. The description of the death of Ezekiel's wife is that brief. We hadn't heard anything about his wife. We only learned that he is married in verse 16, and by verse 18 she's dead. Ezekiel is told, I am going to take the delight of your eyes away from you at a stroke. And not only that, he's forbidden even to mourn. He's denied even the catharsis of giving public expression to his grief. There appears to be only silence. If you ask why, there doesn't seem to be any answer. The question itself is barely even asked. What is going on here? And this is where we see Ezekiel, the prophet, pointing beyond himself. Because if we consider another case of a death with seemingly no mourning, uh, no meaning or purpose to it, if we consider another who asked why, if we consider Jesus on the cross asking, why have you forsaken me, and getting no answer... Ah, but you say there was an answer. There was an answer to Jesus. The resurrection was the answer, just three days later. The only difference between that case and this one is that in that case, the answer came in three days. Ezekiel's only hope when his wife dies is that there might be a resurrection, but he won't see that. Um, and yet that resurrection is still the answer. Later in the chapter, it becomes clear that what's being depicted here is that the people are going to have the delight of their eyes taken from them. Their temple is going to be destroyed. Their city is going to be destroyed. They're going to be separated uh, from their family. There's going to be death. There's going to be destruction. And they're not even going to be allowed the catharsis of mourning. It's just going to happen. If you ask yourself, what kind of God is this? The answer to that question doesn't fully come until we look at Jesus, until we look at the one that Ezekiel is pointing beyond. Um, Jesus was brutally honest about the people's story. Um, he told a, a parable uh, about uh, some wicked tenants um, taking care of a of a vineyard that made it very very clear that he was condemning the people um, for destroying and 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 abusing everything that God had given them, turning away uh, from their calling. Um, it made them very very angry. Um, he he didn't tell that parable until near the end of his life, and it might have been one of the things that riled them up the most um, right before they put him to death. He was brutally honest uh, about uh, their history. Um, Jesus also brings a word of judgment, but with this difference, that whereas the righteousness of Noah and Job and Daniel would not have been sufficient to save anybody but themselves, Jesus' righteousness... Jesus' righteousness is so exceedingly great that he can give it to us, that he can give it, that he can save other people by it. Jesus is the one that enters into radical solidarity with his people. Jesus is the one who chose to take on our nature, chose to leave his Father's courts above, chose to take on our flesh in order to bear the penalty for our sin. Um, He did not have to do any of that. It wasn't thrust upon him, like it's thrust upon Ezekiel. Ezekiel has no choice in the matter. You can imagine how terrible it is to hear uh, what Ezekiel heard. Um, But it was thrust upon him. Jesus chose to enter into radical solidarity with us. And why is that? It gets back to what God said in Ezekiel 13, because the Lord does not desire that any should perish. The Lord takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. The Lord is always a God who is saying, look, I am holding out life and death to you. Choose life. But he is also a God that doesn't demand that we make for ourselves a new heart and a new spirit capable of choosing the right, but he gives it. He gives it by His grace. He gives us faith in Him. He strengthens that faith, not in any other way, but then through His Son. He gives us His Spirit. He calls us to this table. The question that we're left with from these long chapters that we've just been able to dip below the surface a few times for uh, is simply this. Why would we choose death when life is on offer? God does not want any of us to perish. God does not want any of us to be separated from him. To live, choose life. As we come to this table, in order to have our faith fed and to receive again of his grace, let's pray.